We want to be in Psalm 119 again this morning as we continue our study summer in the Psalms. This summer we're doing all of Psalm 119 bit by bit by bit because it's long. But we'll, uh, if you turn there, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll be starting in verse 33 here in just a second. Um, you know, it's not easy to talk about important issues these days. Uh, people have allowed strong opinions and beliefs to outweigh kindness and respect. Uh, people have gravitated to the extremes and reasonable dialogue has suffered. There seems to be an us versus them sort of mentality in every aspect of our public discourse. Now, I'll give you an example. And this might be, it might get me in trouble with some of you. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, about a month ago, there was a bill authored in the Texas Senate uh, that failed to receive the necessary votes in the Texas House of Representatives. And this bill would have mandated that every classroom in the state have the Ten Commandments posted on the wall for everyone to see. When we questioned about the bill, one of the lawmakers commented that bringing the Ten Commandments and prayer back to our public schools will enable our students to become better Texans. Okay. Uh, there was also a man named David Barton, not a lawmaker, but a, a sort of a lobbyist, I guess, or a policy, I don't know. Uh, but he had been rallying Texans in support of this idea, and he argued that it would return morality to Texas classrooms and help prevent such things as school shootings, among other things. Now, an opponent of the bill said that he was concerned about taxpayer money being used to buy religious texts and that parents should be the ones introducing their children to such religious concepts. And there was this intense disagreement that grew more and more antagonistic in the media to the point where people on both sides were labeling each other evil and calling each other names. And this is where we find ourselves, caught in the middle of a raging public debate over whether the Ten Commandments should be displayed on public property operated by the state. Now, if you ask me, this is all a distraction. We all know that publicly uh, displaying laws doesn't change people's hearts. Uh, I see the one that says 75 all the time. It never matters. Um, I go 77. I'm not saying that I'm terrible. But it, it, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, the only thing that can really change people's lives, change their hearts and minds, is the Holy Spirit. It's not posted laws. Which means that worrying about <clears throat> whether the Ten Commandments are displayed in public spaces or not, that shouldn't be a big concern for us. Instead, we should be busy earning the right to speak into people's lives by showing them just how much they are loved by Jesus and by us. We should be focused on how to introduce people to the love and forgiveness of Jesus. We should be motivated to share the hope that we have in Him. We should be looking for ways to create space for them to encounter the Holy Spirit, not by reading or ignoring a set of laws posted in public classrooms, but in every aspect of their everyday lives. Because that's how lives are changed. You're probably wondering what this has to do with Psalm 119. And the answer is everything. 
Because Psalm 119 is a song about the importance of God's Torah laws, about what it means to live by them. What we know on this side of the cross is that we are not capable of doing that on our own. We need Jesus. The author didn't realize it, but that's what this psalm is really about. As we look at each verse in this psalm, our minds should continually be drawn to Jesus and how he fulfilled the law and brought it to completion and fulfillment on the cross. So with all that in mind, let's take a closer look at this week's uh, text and follow along with me as we read from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and, do, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared and turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in, the, in your righteousness. Give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place where I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so, in this section, the psalmist asked for God to teach them and give them understanding, promising to keep the Torah law to the end. And as genuinely well-intentioned as that sounds, we know it's not possible. Paul makes it clear in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means that we are once again face to face with Jesus right here in this song. Because only Jesus kept God's way to the end. Observed it with his whole heart. But that does raise the question about what we are doing with our whole hearts. The most obvious answer is nothing. There isn't anything that we are doing with our whole heart, with every fiber of our being. In Hebrew, the word used there is laib or lebe, not sure, uh, but it means the inner man, the, the will, the mind. Uh, we can easily read this text with any of those uh, phrases or words. The focus is on following God's law with our will, under our own power. But our will is not capable of freely choosing to live fully in God's will. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, 7-8, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, 
Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Time after time, Paul and the other authors of the New Testament make this clear. Our hearts, our minds, our very will is divided from the beginning. From the moment we enter this world, we are in trouble. In Psalm 58.3, David wrote that we go astray from birth. And in Job 15.14, we read that what is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? We discover right and wrong early on from our parents, family members, and others. But it doesn't matter. We still do what we want. We're selfish, we're self-centered, we're self-absorbed. It's the nature that we inherit from the world that we are born into. Manners have to be taught. But selfishness is there from the beginning. And I'm not saying we can't learn. People can do good things. But outside of the Holy Spirit, they do them for the wrong reasons. For selfish reasons. And nobody is perfectly good. No one is righteous. We see this repeatedly in Scripture. From Psalm 14, 1 through 3, to Psalm 53, 1 through 3, to Romans 3, 10 through 12. They all say the same thing. There is none who are righteous, none who seek after God, none who do good. That brings us back around to the question, how do we observe God's Torah law with our whole heart. The only possible way is by looking to Jesus, as we read in Hebrews 12 too, the author and perfecter of our faith, by trusting in his life and death and resurrection, by opening our heart, our mind, and our will to the Holy Spirit. Even then we still fail here and there. Hopefully less as each day passes. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live what author Matthew Kelly calls holy moments. As we grow in the Spirit, we can live them more and more. We have to give our whole heart to God every morning when we wake up. Every moment of every day as we saw a week ago, we need to choose and then cling to God's way as we run the race set before us. The problem is we overlook this or we take it for granted. We enter some days thinking we can handle it. We get too relaxed and we think well, we can just cruise through on our own. And that's when we end up chasing after selfish gain, doing things for ourselves, even good things. Things that seem righteous but turn out to be sinful when we are chasing them for the wrong reasons. Like helping others. If we are helping others because we are relying on the Holy Spirit to bring about the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven in us, we will do well. But if we are not relying on the Holy Spirit, if we are relying on our own ability apart from the Spirit, we may still do a good thing but our motive will be sinful. It'll be about us at some level or another. Hey, look at me. Honor me. I'm helping people. Pay attention. See what I'm doing? It's all so good. 
all of us know people like this, and all of us have been like this at some point. Maybe more often than we would like to admit. But you can always tell the difference. We see an example of this in Matthew 19, 16-22. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Well, he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, what Jesus revealed in this story is the true will of the man. He didn't actually love his neighbor because he wasn't willing to part with his wealth in order to help his neighbor. The line that really unveils his selfishness is the bit at the end. He went away sad. He was trying to get Jesus to justify him and his way of doing things. We do this all the time. We try to be one way or another, and then we try to stamp God and Jesus on it like their approval, as if what we've done will then be made right. We try to justify ourselves by comparison with people who have done the worst things instead of by comparing ourselves to Jesus. We say we aren't as bad as old so-and-so. We say we would never do what that horrible person did. Every time this comes up, I'm reminded of a story my friend told me. Uh, she was a county clerk in a court designated for misdemeanors and domestic assaults. And to speed up the process, the court would sort of line up the inmates in front of the bench and then do guilty pleas, sort of like assembly line style. And on a particular day that she told me about, there were these two defendants standing right next to each other at the bench, and they were ready to enter their guilty pleas. The judge asked each one who it was that they assaulted. And the first guy said, my baby mama. And then the judge moved on to the second man who said, my mom. And at this point, the first dude stepped away from the second with a look of like horror and disgust. It makes me laugh every time I think about it. But this is what it's like to compare ourselves to others. We are all standing guilty before the judge, pleading our actions, but somehow acting as if we're better than the people around us. That's our selfish nature. The author of this psalm made the connection between selfish gain and worthless things in verse 37, because those two go together. But in contrast, the psalmist asked the Lord for life. And this reveals that selfishness is actually set against life. It opposes life. The life beyond measure that God wants us to experience. When we're selfish, we miss the true goodness God's life beyond measure has to offer. We neglect the greater blessing of living God's way. And what we think is benefiting us is actually damaging us. 
And that's the subtle way that sin kills us. It rips us away from the life we were meant to have in favor of a life we think we want. It turns out just to be death in disguise. Now, the psalmist understood this and he begged the Lord for life. To not be drawn away into selfishness. And this is the focus of the next several verses from 38 to 40, where the psalmist again requests life from God. We know that anytime we see phrases repeated in Hebrew literature, they're there for emphasis. And this was the songwriter's way of emphasizing just how important God's way of life is. How important it was for Israel to honor God and keep the Torah laws. That's yet another way that this all points to Jesus, who did honor God and live by God's law, who did bring us life beyond measure. And that moves us into the next section where the poet requested God's steadfast love and salvation according to the Lord's promise. And this is most likely referring to the promise given in Deuteronomy 28. Specifically in verse 9, where it says, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, and walk in his ways. We have to remember the context here. The Jewish people had only recently returned from their exile in Assyria. They were home, and they wanted to stay there this time. The psalmist was asking for God to keep this promise to establish them in their own land, to bless them and to watch over them, to protect them from their enemies, to enrich their crops and their families. And in return, the people were going to hold fast to the Torah laws. This was their hope. But it isn't ours. Our hope is not wrapped up in following the Torah laws of God. Our hope is wrapped up in the only one who ever did. In His power in the power that flows from the Holy Spirit, which inhabits everyone who trusts in Him. So when we arrive at verse 43, and the psalmist claims that his hope is in God's rules, we actually know better. We have a clearer picture of the truth, because we see all this through the lens of Jesus, through the cross and the empty tomb. We know from Galatians 3.19 that the law was given because of sin. To distinguish between those who belonged to God and those who did not. It was always meant to point to Jesus, though. To the one who lived as we were meant to live. To the one who would renew our lives and free us from our slavery to sin and death. We could not accomplish this. We could not keep the law, but in Him, we are being changed into the people who do keep the law. Not by following a set of rules, but by living in a right relationship with our God. By spending each day opening our whole being to the Holy Spirit, so that one day, we will be like Jesus. But even then, our hope will still be in Him. This is part of the reason that even though we recognize the Ten Commandments as part of our spiritual heritage, we also know that posting them in public areas won't bring about real change. It didn't work in Israel. It won't work here. 
The real change comes when people trust in Jesus and open themselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit. According to Paul, that comes by us proclaiming the good news of Jesus. In Romans 10, 14-15, he wrote, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He was making a case for the Roman believers to support his ministry on a trip to the land we call Spain. The land at the farthest reach of the Roman world in the Mediterranean. And he felt called to take the good news to the ends of the earth so that all people could hear about the risen and reigning king of all creation. We have that same calling. For the people of this town first, and then for those beyond. Jesus told his followers that starting in their own backyards, they would work their way out and would eventually take the good news about him everywhere. It's the Great Commission. Paul believed this, and he was trying to do his part. And the believers who supported Paul as a missionary, they were doing their part as well. They were carrying on the mission at home, while Paul and the others carried it abroad. Which means if we are followers of Jesus, this is what we are called to do as well. Not to worry about whether the Ten Commandments are, uh, are or are not placed in public spaces, but to take the good news everywhere. This is why the whole Ten Commandments thing is a distraction. It's not our calling. It's the way the enemy has gotten us to take sides and fight amongst ourselves instead of working together to spread the good news about Jesus. This brings us to verse 46, where the psalmist wrote that they would speak of God's Torah law before kings. And it could be that this was a Jewish king who intended to tell other kings about God's way. Or it could be that this singer believed that they would be given certain opportunities to do that. We can't really be sure. But what we do know is that Jesus told his followers the same thing about the good news. In Matthew 10, 18-20, he told them, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We know this is exactly what happened. Peter and John, when they were confronted by the Jewish religious leaders for telling others about Jesus in Acts 4. It's also what happened to Paul in Acts 26 when he was taken before King Agrippa and told his own conversion story as a way of relating the good news to him. What does this mean for us? What kings and rulers will we be able to speak to? Who knows? We can't predict it. We can simply be faithful. We can also look at what it was that caused this to happen to Peter and John and Paul. In these cases, they were sharing the good news with others, and then it opened doors for them to share it with the rulers. 
which means that at the very least we should be sharing the good news with others in our community and beyond. In verses 47 through 48, the poet trusted that they would find delight in the commandments of God, that they would lift up their hands toward the commandments which they loved in praise. I think we could just as easily swap out the commandments for Jesus and find delight in Him as we lift our hands to Him in praise. Because we love Him. Because we have a relationship with a person instead of a set of rules. And because we have this relationship with Jesus, we are being made more and more like Him every day. That the commandments themselves are not what are changing us, but that we are being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence within us. We end up honoring the commandments of the Father by being changed into the likeness of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel 11, 19-20, God spoke through the prophet saying, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. So the heart of stone was the commandments, the, the Ten Commandments written in stone and kept in the Ark of the Covenant. But the heart of flesh, that's different. In first, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, 3, Paul sort of brought this all forward, revealing that believers show that they are a letter from God, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The promise has come to fruition. As a result, we have much to do while we are here. As we follow our calling to share the good news and live a little more like Jesus every day. We stop worrying about whatever the media tells us is important. And we share the good news of Jesus. Will you pray with me?